X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It's Monday, May 18th, 2020. Today, back in the day on May 18th, 1980 at 8.32 a.m., a magnitude 5.1 earthquake caused the largest landslide on Earth in recorded history on Mount St. Helens Bulge and Summit. The landslide depressurized the volcano's magma system, triggering powerful explosions that blasted debris and sent 500 million tons of ash to Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and as far away as Montana. Some of we Oregonians still have our ash. That eruption claimed 57 lives, caused $3 billion in damage, and took 1,314 feet off that mountain. Today on The Local, an amplified Quick 6 headlines and an interview with Shamia Fagan, candidate for Secretary of State. First up, it is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Today's episode is dedicated to Representative Mitch Greenlick and to Geneva's sheer perfection. We'll start with the political news. We've been talking about House District 33. We've interviewed Saren Bustle, Maxine Dexter, Andy Saltz. We've mentioned that House District 33 includes a bunch of Northwest Portland, includes some of unincorporated Multnomah and Washington counties. We mentioned the reason the seat was opening was that Representative Mitch Greenlick was retiring. We should now say more about Mitch. He passed away Friday night. He served as the chair of the health care committee over multiple sessions, was probably the most respected Democrat on health care policy. He set an example as a representative who brought accomplishments to public service, as distinct from having all of his accomplishments through elected service. He founded Kaiser Permanente's Center for Health Research, directed it for 30 years. Just last week, he participated in a conference call in the state's COVID-19 response. He served in the Oregon House for 18 years. Want to know what he was like? Well, here's an old clip. When he was serving on chair of the health care committee, taking testimony and asking questions of Republican State Representative Jim Widener, the topic was a tax increase to fund health care for uninsured Oregonian children. The question is, you're willing not to enroll those 80,000 kids in health insurance? I guess that's the key question. Question, I mean, if that's the way you want to pose it, I mean, there's different ways that you, we could address this issue, but is, you also have to look at, is it something that the state of Oregon, can, can they afford to do this at this time? Well, yeah, if there are other ways to enroll those kids, <coughs> I'd be happy to hear the suggestion, but if not, the question really is, are you willing to do away with that 1% tax and not enroll 80,000 kids that don't have health insurance? Is that an option you're willing to accept? With not sitting on your committee and knowing everything that transpired, I cannot give you a clear answer on that at this time, Chair Greenlick. Well, if we told you that reducing the 1%, eliminating this tax, would not allow us to enroll those kids in health insurance, is that an option you would be willing to accept? I think that's the key we're facing. We eliminate the 1%, then we find some, either we find some other way to finance the health insurance of those kids, or we leave them uninsured. And I, if you don't have another option for doing it, is it okay with you if we simply don't provide health insurance for those needy kids? When in the House, friends and I viewed him as a rare person of wisdom. His family will hold a small private service within a few days in the Jewish tradition, and a public celebration of life will be considered when the time is appropriate. We miss you, Mitch. Oregon's primary election is tomorrow. This close to the election, use a ballot drop box if you haven't already mailed your ballot. 
A reminder, some of the go-to drop boxes might not be in operation, so go to OregonVotes.gov, that's OregonVotes.gov, to get an up-to-date list of operational drop boxes. In 2016, final count of Multnomah County Register voters who turned in their ballot, 56.39%. In 2018, it was 30.76%. What's turnout going to look like? Stay tuned. We'll give you the numbers this week. As a result of social spacing, most county election offices must operate with fewer staff. Because of this, many counties have already started processing ballots. State law allows counties to begin counting ballots one week before the deadline. They can't release any results until after 8 p.m. on Tuesday. So voters still have until 8 p.m. Tuesday to drop off your ballots. And after 8 p.m., there will be some results. And when races aren't close, some of those results right at 8.01 might be pretty definitive. And join us for our episodes on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We'll be going over the results. Your daily dose of data, nine new coronavirus cases in Oregon on Sunday. Total number of cases in Oregon, 3623. The number of new cases reported on Sunday marks a drastic decrease from recent days. On Saturday, 64 new cases reported, and the day before that, it was 63. And again, Sunday, just nine. Let's hope it holds. Meanwhile, Washington State has 18,443 confirmed cases and now over 1,000, 1,001 known coronavirus-related deaths. Meanwhile, Oregon has received its first shipments of remdesivir, That's the experimental antiviral drug that has been used to treat patients hospitalized with severe cases. The drug hasn't been formally approved by the FDA, but it is being used under federally approved emergency use authorization. Preliminary clinical testing shows that some patients treated with the drug recovered up to 31% faster. Providence St. Vincent and Providence Portland Medical Centers have been approved for clinical trials of the drug. More than 30 patients were treated as of Saturday. Closing, opening, closing, opening. We're tracking it for you and with you. The convention center and two parks and rec community centers that have served as emergency shelters are going to close. They'll be shutting down in favor of other locations, such as motels and hotels, that can offer more social spacing, that is, walls. We don't know when they're going to be closed yet, nor do we know which motels or other housing will replace those spaces. We do know that people won't be returning to the existing shelters. And 31 counties on Friday were allowed to enter phase one of the state's reopening plan. Marion County, that's Salem's County, weren't on that list. Their COVID-19 hospitalizations are going up rather than down. And Clackamas, Multnomah, and Washington counties have not yet applied to reopen. And the Salem salon owner who defied the stay-at-home order has been hit with a $14,000 fine per OSHA. Lindsey Graham, owner of the Glamour Salon in Salem, reopened her salon on May 5th. She got support from Patriot Prayer organizer Joey Gibson, who showed up with some demonstrators. Lindsey Graham created a GoFundMe campaign to pay for her legal fees. So far, she's raised $23,000. And for now, Graham plans to keep the salon open. No word if she'll run for the U.S. Senate in South Carolina. And Geneva's sheer perfection, long a center of gravity in Portland's black community, is closed after 30 years. Paul Knowles Jr. owned the place started by his dad, Paul Sr., known as the mayor of Northeast Portland, and started also by his late mom, Geneva. Said Paul Jr., COVID-19 is a pandemic, and it appears the poor leadership of the country is not making it a priority to keep 70 to 80 percent of the people that look like us in some areas of the country alive. Still quoting, it is absolutely impossible from our point of view to operate our business safely. If you have four barbers, you sometimes see over 60 clients a week. That's at least 240 people in a week. That could reach 1,000 people in a month. Stop and wrap your head around that for just a second. If you consider those numbers, COVID-19 will inevitably show up at our doorstep. The science is absolute. That's too large of a burden to bear if the worst happens. Add stylists and their customers to that, including the children of the next generation. The risk is just not worth it. Thank you to Geneva's and the Knowles family for being pillars of our community. 
And as we look at the dynamics of this Oregon primary, one of the more important elements will be the role of organized labor. Last legislative session, lawmakers made a deal that cut public employee pensions in order to pass the increase on corporate taxes to fund schools. For some of those who voted to cut pensions, some of their campaign support has disappeared. How is organized public labor showing up in this primary? This relies on reporting for the Portland Tribune and Hillary Board's story in The Oregonian. Here are four examples. As reported previously, Secretary of State candidate Shamia Fagan has outraised both of her competitors combined with 80% of the dollars raised from public labor, including 100 grand from OEA, that's a teacher's union, and 95 grand from SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. Senator Mark Hassa Beaverton says that labor chose Fagan over him because of his vote to reduce pensions. Fagan replies that her support is based on her long record of support for labor. A note that Shamia Fagan has been a frequent guest on X-Ray, and you can hear her interview later in this episode. Representative Alyssa Kenny Geyer shared her concerns about the large individual donations to Fagan's campaign from public labor and campaign tactics in an email to Fagan later shared with Lamont Week. I'm quoting here, In addition to the obscene amounts of money from so few sources going to your campaign, now there is an independent expenditure cleverly called Oregonians for Ballot Access, made to appear neutral. End quote. Note that Kenny Geyer supporting Jamie McLeod Skinner also note that an independent expenditure means that Fagan was not allowed to participate in the messaging or strategy of Oregonians for ballot access. And example three, another PAC formed by Labor has weighed in on the House District 36 race between Dr. Lisa Reynolds, Rob Fulmer, and Lori Wimmer. Fulmer's union organizer, Wimmer, a union lobbyist. PAC's treasurer is Mark Abrams, long an AFSCME member of the American Federation of State, Municipal, and County Employees. That group is going after Dr. Lisa Reynolds, saying that voters should reject her because she supported former Republican Secretary of State and gubernatorial candidate Newt Bueller, both financially and in an op-ed. And finally, House District 42. This is Southeast Northeast Portland District. Rob knows the current state legislator, and he has a background as a union organizer. He's running against Paige Kreisman. We've interviewed them both here. And Labor? Well, Kreisman has endorsements from AFSCME, the OEA, and the American Federation of Teachers. That's AFT. Rob Nose has not logged any donations from public sector unions. Nose is still outraised, Paige Kreisman. What's the change for Nose? Those voted to reduce public employee pensions. State Representative Andrea Salinas provided one of the decisive votes on that PERS bill. She initially voted no, but changed to a yes after meeting with House Speaker Tina Kotek. And here's the quote. It was and still is something I think about. It did not really comport with my own values, how I think about PERS, but I feel things could have started to unravel in terms of the agreement with the Senate in terms of funding the student success bill. End quote. That was a corporate tax I was referring to. Reminder that Joe Basler of Asked Me said on X-Ray that he didn't think the deal was necessary to pass that corporate tax. Also note that most House Democratic incumbents did not get hard challenges this primary season. And a final note, Oregon is one of five states with no limits on campaign contributions. And some good news. The vast bulk of Oregon counties have qualified to reopen under Governor Kate Brown's Phase 1 criteria. And that means Oregon State Parks have reopened along the Central Coast. Of the parks that have been newly reopened, 20 have beach access. They range from Lincoln City all the way down the coast to the border of California. Locally, Tryon Creek is reopened for day use. There are now 100 reopened Oregon State Parks, including Yahat State Recreation Area, Glen Eden Beach, Devil's Punch Bowl, Pete French Round Barn, and Wallawa Lake Highway Forest State Scenic Corridor. The Parks Department has been in close communication with counties along the coast. Both Oregon State Parks and the counties are now ready for visitors. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. X-Ray. Shamia Fagan, candidate for Secretary of State, talks with Jefferson Smith about what the Secretary of State really does, how she's running a campaign amidst a pandemic, and about her background getting things done statewide. 
This interview was recorded shortly after the stay-at-home order began in March. You can find Secretary of State candidate interviews from Mark Hass, Jamie McLeod Skinner, and Rich Vile over at xraypod.com or on your favorite podcast platform under X-Ray's Vision 2020 candidate interview series. Right now, candidates aren't in a position to do as many things in person. They can't go to a town hall meeting. They can't knock door to door. They can't do sit down interviews inside the same studio or inside the same boardroom. We are trying to redouble our efforts to give candidates a platform to communicate and give voters the information that they need to make sure we have the discussion in our democracy that our democracy needs and maybe even deserves. Right now, we are with Shamia Fagan. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jefferson, having me metaphorically, because, of course, you're somewhere and I'm somewhere much farther than six feet away from you. I'm in my house and my dog may bark in the background and we will just uh, ignore him. Yeah, We're not in the same room and I'm even wearing rubber gloves or latex gloves. Who are you and why are you running? Well, I'm Shamia. I'm a state senator in Oregon. I've been in public service in Oregon since about 2011. I was first served on the David Douglas School Board in the state house and now in the state Senate. And Jefferson, as you know, the whole time I've been in public service, I've been really honest with Oregonians about my family struggles and where I come from. I grew up in eastern Oregon, Dufer and the Dow. My brothers still live in eastern Oregon in Pendleton and Stanfield. And my mom battled meth and heroin addiction for most of my life. My dad was a single parent. And, you know, my mom was homeless in Portland for many years. And when she finally passed away in October of 2014, she'd been clean for almost six years and was living in a little house that she owned in Umatilla. And the minister who performed her service, you know, said a line that, that I've really has stuck with me all these years where she said, you know, Trish reached the place of an ordinary life a job and a house and a dog, but it didn't just happen to her. She fought for it with everything she had in her. And that is something that has informed my public service is the idea of folks out there not fighting for riches and fame and glory, but fighting just for ordinary. And I think what makes us able to fight and what motivates us to keep fighting is the knowledge that progress is within reach. And I think it's democracy at its core that keeps progress within reach for everyday people to believe that their community can be better, their lives can be better, their world can be better, and that progress is always within reach. And with democracy, we don't always get the candidates we want. We don't always get the policies that we want, but we always get to believe that the next time, the next election, that the progress is within reach. And so I think as the Secretary of State, there are a lot of roles that the Secretary of State does, and we are finding creative ways to explain those to people as we are social distancing in this campaign. But at its core, the most important function of the Secretary of State and what the Oregon Secretary of State shares with Secretary of State all across the country is safeguarding free and fair elections. Other states have a Secretary of State that, that does only elections while other people do state lands and auditing, whereas in Oregon, the Secretary of State does all of those things. But still, the one thing that we share in common across this country is the Secretary of State makes sure that we do free and fair elections. And I think now more than ever, we're seeing the need for that as, as other states start delaying their primaries. And we're really proud to have vote by mail here in Oregon. I want to start by talking about the dynamic of you entering the race. Now, I'm going to tell you the story that I think happened. It is based on no conversation with you or really no facts at all. Just my own vague awareness of how things might work and rampant speculation. So here is this episode <laughs> in rampant speculation. All right. Jennifer Williamson is a friend of yours, friend of mine, too, to be clear and to disclose. Good friend of yours. She runs for secretary of state. You decide, again, this is me telling the story, and then you're going to tell me what I got wrong or what I missed. 
you decide not to run for Secretary of State because you're not going to run against your friend Jennifer Williamson. As that is happening, there is an important vote on some relatively modest purse changes. A bunch of Democrats line up with, I don't even know how many Republicans, they didn't like any of that stuff that anybody in the Democratic Party was doing. But Public labor certainly didn't like those votes. And Jennifer Williamson stands with leadership as part of what she viewed as a legislative compromise to do something somewhat modest on purse changes. You don't vote with legislative leadership. You stand with public employee unions and, and retirees and say we're not messing with their retirements. You, pa- you cast that vote. Jennifer Williamson get, starts getting hit in the press starts hearing from public labor that they're not going to support her now. It was already maybe a little tenuous because of that vote, but she was viewed as the front runner, so they were st- probably going to still stick with her. She then drops out of the race. You then look around and say, probably talk to Jennifer. In my story, you do talk to her and say, hey, you're not in. You think I ought to get in? And you have that same conversation with a bunch of people and say, yeah, you know, it's getting a little bit late. You probably would have wanted to run, run already. But looking at this field, you can still win. And you have a good path to support for public labor because not only is Jennifer Williamson not in the race, but you voted with them on PERS rather than against them. And so you come thinking you can get ahead of steam. Of course, now we're in the middle of COVID-19, which I also want to talk to you about. What did I get wrong or what did I miss? I well, I, you got the votes right, but I was not thinking of running for Secretary of State back when I stood with public workers to not cut their retirement again. Because, uh, as you know, this is I've been in the legislature since 2013, and it's not about each isolated vote, it's about the fact that their retirement continues to be on the chopping block and kind of seems to be cut and nicked away at every session. And so I did stand with public workers, and not only did I vote against it, uh, which a few other Democrats and some Republicans did, but I was the only member of the legislature of 90, 30 in the Senate, 60 in the House, to actually go into the committee, look at the Speaker of the House and the Senate President, both of whom are Democrats and are my own leadership, and publicly testify against their bill. Uh, Because, again, I I did not believe that it was the right thing to do. And so in, in the bigger context of that is that the walkout that happened last, the first walkout, you know, now we have to say the first walkout because there have been five Jefferson where the Senate Republicans and now the House Republicans decided. To I keep thinking it's only four. They it's don't a, like the results. Yeah. Well, they did five. I mean, if you count the fact that the House Republicans did it twice in February. Oh, uh, the House. Five, yes, yes. Because they did it once for a night session because they refused to show up. And then they later walked out entirely. But counting total walkouts, there have been five. But back under the first one where they, of course, walked out of the Student Success Act not over cap and trade, not over, you know, letting the voters vote in a referral, but they did it over the Student Success Act, which, of course, was to tax corporations, large corporations in Oregon to fund schools in every corner of the state. They came back under three conditions. One was to end efforts to pass a gun safety bill. The second was to end efforts to tighten up our immunization laws to require all school children to have immunization unless they had a medical reason otherwise. And the third was that we would cut PERS. And so not only did I believe that that we should stand with public workers uh, because it wasn't the right thing to do. But I also did not believe that we should continue to capitulate to the far right that doesn't want to accept the outcome of the 2018 election and shut down the government unless we do what they want. So I was not thinking in any way about running for secretary of state at the time of the purge, but I don't know that Jennifer was either. I think that she was looking sure, nor was I thinking that the plotting was beginning then. I just think that becomes part of the story later. But anyway, what what else did I sure, miss sure. out or what or yeah, ever get I mean, wrong? I did have a conversation with Jennifer. He's one of my close friends. She threw my son's baby shower eight years ago uh, that your wife uh, was at also. So she has been a very good friend of mine for a very long time, and I was supporting her in the race. And when she did decide to drop out, 
before she announced that, she did give me a phone call and ask if, um, you know, what my thoughts were about running. Because we, of course, I had been working pretty closely in her campaign, had been following the issues with her, had been helping her, you know, think through responses to different answers. So she knew I had been deep in this office as something that I really cared about. I've been working on voting reforms since I showed up to the legislature in 2013. I was at a small roundtable of bus project folks, your former, uh, the, the organization that you founded for voting rights. Uh, then Secretary of State Kate Brown and other members of a few, only a handful of other members of the legislature as we charted a path to passing automatic voter registration, which we then passed two years later. Um, the very first bill I sponsored in 2013 was to create the Office of Small Business Advocates. And by the way, I'll set aside, I'll set aside impartiality for a moment. Thank you for that. I think the passage of, and shout out also to Caitlin Baggett and a bunch of other people, the passage of automatic voter registration, one of the more exciting things that's happened in Oregon, one of the things that deserves its place alongside those other big Oregon firsts that politicians and academics like to trot out. Forgive my interruption, keep cracking. No, that's fine. So yeah, so I mean, the bottom line is I've been working on these issues since I showed up in 2013. And so obviously when Jennifer decided to run, I was not only supporting her as a friend, but I was excited to see somebody that I've been working with on those issues running for secretary of state. So, yeah, when she decided to withdraw, I looked around and I had already considered early, early on before Jennifer was considering running. I had actually spoken with Jamie McLeod Skinner about the possibility of supporting her. Um, But by the time, you know, Jennifer got in and then got out in February, I didn't, you know, I believe that there was not quite the campaigns being run yet. I thought that, you know, essentially the candidates who are in the race were saying essentially the same thing, just saying it kind of from a different place. And I think there's a, a, there's an opportunity in this race for a lot more bold solutions. And so what I believe I bring to the race, Jefferson, is, you know, both governing experience that Mark Haas has, um, but a progressive voting record that has stood against even Democratic leadership at times. You named one of them with the PERS votes, but I'll remind folks that in fact, I was recently at a city club debate, and one of the questions was, can you name one time that you have, um, you know, kind of bucked the Democratic Party? And I said, no, I can't name one time, but I can name three, and one of at least three. And one, of course, was when I um, ran against a 45-year incumbent, Rod Monroe, to join the Oregon State Senate. Uh, he was a member of Senate leadership, and I primaried an incumbent Democrat and beat him in a three-way primary with over 60% of the vote. The second was um, was my very first vote as a state senator. I became the first Democrat in history to vote against Peter Courtney as Senate president because I didn't believe he was the leader that Oregon needed uh, in our current environment. And so, you know, this is something that I had already shown my willingness to kind of buck the party when I believed that, you know, I was doing the right thing. And then um, and so there's you know, there was nobody with there is nobody else in this race with both a proven you know, governing record in Oregon and legislative experience to pass some big ideas, but also, you know, a record that shows that I will stand for for what's right, even when it's not what the Democratic Party or the party leadership is doing. And so there was room in this race for someone with bold ideas and progressive governing experience. And I'm, I'm still the only candidate in the race that, that brings that to the table. Let's talk about the issue with Peter Courtney. It was a big deal. For you to, in fact, I was talking to somebody just the other day. I was like, oh, I love Shmia Fagan. She was willing to stand at Peter Courtney. And the context of that is there have been a bunch of bills. And it's not, I don't think, just because of Peter Courtney. It's because of the composition of the state Senate, including several of the Democrats in the state Senate, where bills, some would call them progressive bills to be sure, might be a gun bill, might be a banking bill, something else, 
gets passed in the House after significant debate and consternation and compromise, then gets over to the Senate to languish. And you took the step of speaking out against that, of speaking out against uh, Peter Courtney's uh, personal leadership as well. What was the dynamic there? What were your thoughts around it? What blowback did you get? What did you learn from it? Well, I I got a lot of blowback. I mean, it was a very lonely way to start as a state senator. I had just joined the caucus having defeated an incumbent who was all of their friend, Rod Monroe, who you and I both know personally and who I like a lot and done a lot of good things for Oregon. But we had some serious policy disagreements for particularly regarding our housing crisis. And so I ran against him. And obviously, you know, that is an awkward thing to join the caucus. He and Peter Courtney have been friends for a long time and served together for decades. Um, but, you know, you, you bring up a point, Jefferson, that actually is one of the bolder policy solutions that I've put forward in this race. And I'm the only one proposing this is that you're mentioning that, yes, a lot of bills will pass the House, have good, robust public conversation in the House, get over to the Senate. And Jefferson, not only did they not pass, which, you know, democracy is messy sometimes and we don't always get they didn't the get a vote that we want, but they don't even get a vote. And here's why. Because of a loophole in our public records law, and for, for your listeners who don't always know all the roles of the Secretary of State in Oregon, I'll just pause for a second and say that she is the administrator of public records. And so when you when we make a public records request, you typically make that to the Secretary of State's office. And so one policy proposal that I have made in this race, in addition to the public records um, advisory committee recommendations that, of course, passed unanimously because that was not controversial in the Senate, but one solution that I have proposed is that we, so there is this public records loophole, Jefferson, that allows caucus conversations to be confidential, that the notes, the, the records generated there. Now, on the one hand, folks can understand that when you're negotiating with someone, you're not going to have them negotiating very honestly if they're trying to get to yes or bringing up sincere policy disagreements or concerns about legislation. If they think every time you write down their notes, those are going to be public records. So I do understand kind of the basic kind of the principle of that exemption. But the state Senate has taken it to the far extreme where we literally hold a vote. There is a secret vote that takes place inside the Senate Democratic Caucus. Literally, they're called vote slips. It is a piece of paper. It gets passed around Jefferson. You put your name. It has a bill number on it. It has a yes or a no and a comment. And you vote a secret vote on public policy from public officials inside a public process. There's a secret vote. And if that bill does and you're talking about the whip count or something other than the whip count this is a this is we keep taking a whip count to a far extreme it's an actual yep. private vote taking place a ballot that takes place and there's ballot slips that get passed around and we vote and we fold those and we pass those in and only one person in the state senate sees those and if you don't get 16 votes in that room that bill never sees the light of day on the senate floor and yet if you're an advocate for that bill campaign finance reform public safety gun safety whatever it is you don't ever get to know who voted no. So we have people going out there publicly running on issues, committing to be a yes vote on certain public policy that matters to Oregonians, and then going to that Senate caucus and secretly voting no, and yet nobody ever gets to know about it. So when I joined the state Senate, I was so appalled by this process. And again, other caucuses have whip counts, but it's different than an actual secret ballot that takes place. And so I started writing in the comments immediately, please feel free to share with anyone who asks. 
because I thought it was appalling that as a public figure, I get to take a secret vote on paper that no one else knows about. And normally, I want to get back to the public records thing. This is actually very interesting that normally if you wrote an email to a constituent, somebody could issue a FOIA request and get that email. But you're saying there's a loophole in the public records law that meant this little secret vote, this whip count on steroids was not disclosable, was not discoverable, was not FOIAable. Correct. And what the Republicans also do on the flip side is they create a bad bill list. So industry and lobbyists will often work with them to create a bad bill list. And they're all supposed to vote no. A good example of this, Jefferson, is I, I carried a bill to kind of help um, assault survivors get you know their full compensation for a civil jury as opposed to these arbitrary $500,000 caps. I, I pushed Senator Courtney to let me put the bill on the floor, even though we didn't have 16 votes. I said the public this issue's been for the public so many times, they deserve to know where people are. So he let me carry the bill on the floor, knowing that I only had 14 votes in my own caucus. And I knew I needed two Republicans, and a, a, a Republican was actually a co-sponsor of this bill, and I thought, great, I've got at least one. I write my entire... And that gives you 15, which all you need is one person to change their mind, exactly. or one Republican to be there you weren't aware of. 16. Yep. Right. So I, I give this speech, I gear it towards my, you know, I kind of use my conservative dad and, and the jury as the smallest, purest form of small government, et cetera, <laughs> incorruptible. And I give this great speech and I get 14 votes, not even the 15, not even the Republican co-sponsor. And two Republicans come after me afterwards and they say, that's one of the best speeches I've ever heard. You totally had me. But it was on the bad bill list, meaning they have to vote no. Yep. But the public doesn't ever get to see this list because it is under this public records exemption loophole, which we have to close because we can't have people doing public, you know, public officials taking public positions on public issues and having these secret documents passing around to make it where not only do they vote no, the public never gets to see how they vote. So they get to go back time and time again and say they're a yes on this policy, and yet they don't actually – they don't ever have to actually have their vote counted in a public process. No, it's so a great point. I'm glad you're – bold solution that we're proposing. No, I, I'm glad to talk about it. One of the things we're doing, by the way, you're listening to Shamia Fagan. I'm Jefferson Smith. Shamia Fagan is a state senator and candidate for secretary of state. Secretary of State is not who negotiates treaties or works with the Secretary of Defense in our state. Let's talk about the duties of the Secretary of State's office. Again, it's not something that is particularly related to international affairs. In fact, I remember Brian Clem putting forward a bill some years back. I don't know if it ever reemerged or got passed to actually make the Secretary of State have some role in uh, in international trips, because very often the Secretary of State would seem like a thing that the Chinese government or some other government would think was supposed to matter in that sort of deal. But go through the key duties of the Secretary of State's office as it stands in Oregon. So the number one is the they are the chief elections officer. So the Secretary of State is in charge of administering the elections, uh, working with all 36 county clerks in Oregon to make sure that we have free and fair elections, administering the the campaign finance rules through ORSTAR, the, which is the transparent public financing, or excuse me, the public disclosure requirements for people who run for public office and for organizations that put things on the ballot. Um, you also accept candidate filings for office. And so they essentially administer who, you know, who has met the requirements to run for office. The chief elections officer is the number one priority. As I mentioned early, Jefferson, that's the thing that you have in common with all the other secretaries of state across the country, as opposed to, of course, except for the federal secretary of state, which should be called something different because it's confusing. But all 50 states have a secretary of state who does administering the elections. Now, Oregon secretary of state also does the auditing function. So under the Constitution in Oregon, the secretary of state is the auditor of public accounts. In other states, for example, Washington, 
the, they have a separate auditor who does that. But in Oregon, that falls under the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State is also the person who administers public records in Oregon. We already talked a little bit about that. The Secretary of State in Oregon is also the lieutenant governor, which, again, in other states, California, for example, they have in many states, they have a governor and then a lieutenant governor, which is essentially the vice governor, for lack of a better term, that if anything was to happen and the governor was not able to serve, that the Secretary of State in Oregon would automatically become governor. That's what happened in 2015 when John Kitzhopper resigned. Kate Brown, then Secretary of State, automatically became governor. The Secretary of State is also sits on the state lands board. Uh, Oregon was deeded about three and a half million acres of public lands in uh, at statehood. And so the Secretary of State, the treasurer, and the governor sit on the state lands board to essentially administer the common school fund. Those lands are supposed to be used for the benefit of public uh, schools. Elliott Forest is the most popular, uh, the most well-known of those. And then there are other little offices. Uh, there's the corporate division. So anyone who wants to do business in Oregon has to register with the Secretary of State, even if they're not a, an Oregon business. They're, they're, you know, they're a, a foreign corporation, even foreign, meaning Colorado or Mississippi, if they want to do business in Oregon, they have to register with the Secretary of State. We also have the Office of Small Business Assistance that I chief co-sponsored the bill to create that office my first term in the legislature to have a small business advocate in the Secretary of State's office. Um, And then finally, the Secretary of State, we also have the Office of Civic Education which folks know that thinking of maybe elementary school curriculum or the kid governor program. I have some ideas for how we need to make that office much more robust in these times where I think everybody, Jefferson, needs a massive re-education on how to spot misinformation, how to look for credible media sources. Um, Because the reality is I'm more likely to get fake news shared with me from a text or Facebook from my aunt than I am from my niece. Um, And so I think that we need to make that office of civic education much more robust. But those are essentially the big functions of the secretary of state. Well, I will, and I will just say, one of the best communicators in Oregon politics, Shamia Fagan, bringing that to the Secretary of State's office in a race with three strong candidates, the other, Jamie McLeod Skinner and Mark Cass, both of whom we've had a chance to talk to. I hope we'll have a chance to talk again with you, Shamia. Thank you so much for spending this time. You got it, Jefferson. Thanks. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to The Local. You're a hometown in about 30 minutes. Please do rate and review, like and share the podcast with some friends. you got story ideas, send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. Talk to you tomorrow. It's election day. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected. Remember to vote, and thank you, democracy. <laughs>